But we're going to talk about a heavy subject today. It's heavy because we many times, even though we're Christians that believe in a God we can't see, have trouble believing in things we cannot see. So even though I'm going to preach today, on the existence and the reality of Satan. This message is not about Satan. This is message is about Jesus and how he crushed the head of Satan. I never want to glorify things that shouldn't be glorified or obsess about things that should not be obsessed about. <clears throat> but we need to know the reality of Satan that we have an enemy. You know, I remember me and Natalie, we were picking out crafts for the kids. We went to Michael's, and we would find all these, all these little carved wood pieces that the kid could, kids could paint to learn the story. So there was a really cool snake there, right? And so at first, I said, oh, this would be great for the Garden of Eden, right? Let's have the kids paint the snake. And I said, what is this going to be all about? Everyone can come out and tell their parents, look, we painted Satan. I don't want the goal of today's message is not to obsess or glorify Satan but to preach the reality of Satan so we could be on guard against Satan and realize the truth that Jesus has crushed the head of Satan. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and I'll just paraphrase it. Paraphrase it. He says there's two great errors that Christians are prone to. One is totally say that Satan does not exist. Dismiss the idea that Satan exists at all. And the other side of the spectrum is to obsess that there is a Satan, that there is an enemy of God, and that there are demons. So what I want us to do today is have a healthy outlook that there is an unseen world with Satan and demons, but that Christ has crushed the head of Satan, and he has no authority in a Christian's life. You guys know Jaws messed up my life. So I, I tend to use it a lot in preaching. I mean, it messed up. I can't even enjoy the ocean. But there's a scene in Jaws where the chief of police <laughs> and the scientist, they realize that there is a predator enemy shark in the ocean. And what happens is they act like they caught that shark, right? They hang him up and they say, we caught the shark. There's no more danger. And then you know that scene, they cut open the shark and they realize that this is not the shark that um, was guilty of the crime. What happens is the scientists and the chief are trying to say to the mayor of the town, do not open these beaches. It is dangerous and people could get killed. <coughs> there is an enemy that's lurking beneath these waters and if you don't tell people they're there, someone's going to get killed. But the mayor says, I can't do that. I can't do that because we'll lose all this money We'll lose all this business. People's livelihood is based on them coming to this beach, swimming, and have a good time with their family. And if I tell them there's an enemy in this water, no one's going to come to the beach. So he doesn't tell anyone. And what happens? A mom loses her little boy in the movie, right? And she's standing on the edge. He gets eaten and killed by the shark. And you see the mom saying, whatever his name, yelling out, where are you? Where are you? 
And he's killed. He's dead. Because he didn't know there was an enemy in the water. He didn't know there was something lurking beneath. He didn't know there was danger that's there. So he swam around like nothing was going on. And he got killed. The mother comes back the next day and she walks up to the chief of police. And she slaps him right in the face. And she said, I heard that you guys knew there was a predator in the water. You knew there was danger out there and you didn't tell us. Today I don't want to be that chief of police. I don't want any of you to be able to slap me in the face and say, why did you not tell me that there was an enemy, that there were demons, that there was Satan that attacks the church and attacks the people of God? Because there's a temptation in me, me never to preach on Satan. Know why? Because it scares people. They don't want to come back. People, they're preaching about Satan on that church. They're bugging me out. But let me tell you, there's a sinful thing in me. said, let me take this message out. But then I wouldn't love you. Then I wouldn't be a good pastor. Then I wouldn't be preaching the Bible faithfully. Because we're going through the big story of the Bible and we talked about who God is and how he created the earth and how he created man in his image and how man fell and how there was a promised Messiah. But you're going to read your whole Bible and you're going to see something happen over and over again. <clears throat> and we already saw it in Genesis 3. There's an enemy of God called Satan and there's demons who attack people and attack the people of God and attack the church and don't want the work of the gospel to go forward. So we need to know that to understand the big story as a whole and to understand our lives. But a little framework I want you to understand is wrongly people believe that God and the devil on an equal playing field, right? And that's the philosophy of dualism. We believe in it sometimes and we don't even know we believe in it. It's like that yin and yang, good versus evil, and just warring against each other, and it's dualism, where mind over matter, that our bodies really aren't connected to our souls. And it, it preaches this whole philosophy that is not helpful because it's not theologically sound. It doesn't help us really understand who Satan is. Satan is a person, and we're going to get into his origins and where it says in the Bible, and how he works, and how Jesus has crushed his head. That's what I want you to really hear today. But I don't want you at any time to think that Satan is equal with God. He is way inferior. He is a created being. He is a person. He's not omnipresent. It means God's omnipresent. He can be all place. You can pray to him at your home. He'll be with you. I pray in my home. He's omnipresent. Satan's only in one place. God's all-knowing. He's omniscient. I mean, he knows our thoughts. He knows our days. He knew us before we were born. Satan does not know those things. God is eternal. He's infinite. He has no limitations. He has no beginning. He has no end. He always has been. Satan has a beginning and he has an end, which would be God condemning him to eternity in hell. And so I want you to understand that as we jump into this message. So first thing we got to ask ourselves, does Satan exist? In a recent survey in YouGov, just this past September, they did a poll in America. They did a survey of 1,000 people just this last month. 57 people percent of people in America believe that Satan exists. <clears throat> Four out of ten people believe that people at times can be possessed by Satan and or demons. Only one out of ten people believe it can't happen. So this topic today is not even something far-fetched far -fetched when it comes to even surveying Americans. People have differing viewpoints of it, but the majority, 57% of people, believe in Satan. So I have to ask myself a few questions. I have to ask myself, am I having trouble believing in Satan because I can't see him? Then I come to the logical conclusion that 
conclusion that I believe in God and I can't see him. <coughs> so I can't really lay my groundwork logically and rationally on that. Then I even say, okay, in my life experience in this world, have I seen things that could have been demonically or satanically influenced? I have to say with a resounding, in a resound, yes. A few years ago, I read a story, and you might have read it too, about a mother eating her baby. Anyone read that story in the news? Ate her baby. What did she say to the people after she ate her baby? There were voices telling me to eat my baby. I felt like I wasn't in my own body. I felt like I was possessed. There were voices, and I ate my baby. It would be illogical of me as a Christian to not believe that there was demonic and satanic influence behind that. I 110% believe that Satan and or demons were behind that situation, that horrific, horrendous, satanic act of a mom eating her baby. If you go back, remember the son of Sam, the serial killer, the son of Sam? What did he say? He said, my dog was telling me, an animal was speaking to me, telling me to kill these people. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Voices in my head influence the murder people. And if you read the story, I mean, the logical conclusion as a Christian is there was demonic and satanic influence behind this. Let's talk even recently. How about this guy who just, in Washington, D.C., just shot up the Navy base? What did he say? There were electromagnetic forces making me do it. He was hearing voices from the microwave, I believe. All of a sudden, this man in a three-month span went from hearing voices, being demonically influenced, and massacres people. My logical conclusion when I see cases like that is I say it's demonic. Now, I don't want us labeling everything satanic or everything demonic. Once again, I said I'm not obsessing about this. But I also want to be realistic. I look at those things as a pastor. I look at my Bible when Jesus was casting out of de demons out constantly. A man in the streets with chains on, cutting himself, yelling out, and he cast demons out of him. You see him in a confrontation with Satan. I need you to understand that there's an unseen world. And when I look at those things, especially in light of the Bible, I say there's an unseen world of evil, Satan and demons, that at times is influencing people to do horrific acts. Past my logic, and more importantly, the reason I believe in Satan and demons is because the Bible and Jesus taught that Jesus and demons that uh, Satan and demons are a reality. Not only a reality, it said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The biggest reason I believe in an unseen world of demons and Satan is because Jesus said they exist. And through his whole story and through the whole Bible, from the beginning to the end, you see that Satan is at work to destroy the work of the gospel, to destroy lives. That's why I want you to believe that Satan exists. Not even just because Joey logically looks at some situation and said they're demonic, but because the Bible says it. That's the word of God because ultimately Jesus says it. So that's where.
we stand. So with all that in light, I have to ask myself this question. Where in the Bible does it talk about Satan? We've already talked about him right in the fall of man. We saw he was present there, deceiving man, the fall of man. If you look through the whole Bible, even in Job, which one of the earlier books of the Bible, you see Satan go before God, and you see him, God allows Satan to cause Job to suffer for God's glory and his own joy. Even go when David numbers the people and God told him not to, Satan is involved there. When Jesus gets here, everything wraps up. If you read through every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is peppered with Jesus battling Satan and demons. If you read the epistles of Paul and Peter, what do they say? The devil rolls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's heavy in here today. But that's a good thing. I want you to think about things that you don't usually think about. So let's turn to Ezekiel 28. So we see that God in Genesis 1-1, right? He created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes we only think in that scripture it says the earth. But he created the heavens, meaning he created angelic beings. Satan is an angel. Angels are intelligent beings, are moral beings. They have a will, but they have no physical body. That's what an angel is. Angels were created to worship God. In Satan's case, it tells us that he was a guardian cherub, meaning he guarded the holiness of God. We'll get into some more of that. But we realize, once again, there's an unseen world where God created heavenly beings, angels to worship him, to be before his throne, to do so much work for his glory. Satan was created as an angel to worship God, to God His holiness. But somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3, Satan rebelled against God and now was before the image bearers of God and tempting them to sin and rebel against God in the same way. So what we're going to talk about is a passage here in Ezekiel 28 where many theologians and myself believe that we get a view into Satan's origin and Satan's fall and Satan's personality. In the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel is given a direct prophecy to the king of Tyre. And in this prophecy, he's saying, you are wise and you are a wealthy king, but you became puffed up and you said, I am God. I am God. So it's very clear that in those first 10 chapters, he's speaking to the king of Tyre. And Ezekiel's prophesying through him. But then you see a break in verses 11 through 19. And Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came in again. And you see a switch in the text. You see him prophesying once again. But the prophecy doesn't seem to apply to the king of Tyre. It shifts gear and it's used language. That in my opinion, in many theologians' opinion, is talking directly about Satan and his origins. Once again, in the Garden of Eden, what did we see the sin was? And what was Satan's? We'll get into this. They wanted to be like God. What did the king of Tyre say? I am God now. 
You even ask people in the pub world, they still always want to say, I want to rule the world. You know, that's a very light thing. But people, when they're not following Jesus, have this thing to be the ultimate authority in their lives and rule. So I want to read to you verse 11, 19. I want you to listen to the language here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, the son of man. Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are silent of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted into gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were, now listen to this language here. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of the fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So let me help you understand. You see some different language. That doesn't sound like he's talking to just a man. He says, to you, guardian cherub, to you, you were created in perfection. You were cast out of the mountain of God. You walked in the presence of God. What the conclusion is here is the devil, Satan, was influencing the king of Tyre. So he's behind what's going on with the king. In the same way he was behind what's going on with Adam and Eve. They were wise. He was powerful. But he came puffed up, fell into temptation of the devil, act like his father Satan, and said, I am God. So he's influencing the king to act that way. It could have been possession. It could have been influence. But he was acting just like the devil. Before God, he said, I am God. But then you see God direct his prophecy from the man who was influenced by the devil to the one he was, who was influencing the man, Satan himself. And he says directly, just like in Adam and Eve, what happened? He spoke to Adam and Eve, but he also spoke a curse on Satan. <coughs> so he's speaking to the king, but then it shifts to Satan. What do we hear from that language in the text? We hear first, you need to hear that Satan was created as an angel. A cherubim, which is the highest order of angels. They were guardian of God's holiness. He was in the presence of God. He was created beautiful. You, you hear about his, his attire, and you say, it's almost like he had, among created things, he had like unparalleled wisdom and beauty. In a habitat that was unbelievable, in God's presence, the mountain of God. And there's some talk of Eden, and you can preach a whole message of what that means. But we see that what happened with being in the presence of God, his wisdom, his beauty, his role, his function. 
He became puffed up. It says he was originally perfectly moral. Perfectly moral. But then there was unrighteousness found in him. And if you go to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, you'll see the sin of pride. He said, I want to be God. I want to be above. I want to be God. The same thing as the king tired, the same thing in Adam and Eve, the same sin. Ultimately, pride. I don't want to be under God. I don't want to worship God. I want to be God. Those are the origins of Satan. You'll see it peppered throughout all of Scripture. That gives us a helpful view and insight to who Satan is. Now we're going to say, if that's who Satan is, and he fell from the sin of pride, and we see him through the whole Bible, what is his work? We see in the temptation of confrontation between Jesus and Satan, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. What does he ask Jesus to do in the final thing he tempts him? Bow down and worship me. He says, bow down and worship me. He wants worship, but he is also the originator of sin, and he wants other people to fall in the same sin and rebellion as he did. So Satan's work is to cause you to rebel against God, cause the world to rebel against God, just like he rebelled against God. So everyone's their own God. I was talking to a kid this past summer, a young man. We, we call dudes kids way too long. They're like 38 years old, still live with a mama with like, you know, transformer sheets still. He was 38 years old. He, I'm sorry. I went on a rant. I apologize for that. I just think guys need to grow up, need to take responsibility, need to provide, protect, Stand for Jesus, stand for the church. That's a whole nother message. Once again, apologize for the rant. So I'm talking to this young man. And he had a problem with drug addiction. And I'm told that, you know, I'm with people who battle addictions. I want them to find Jesus. I want them to find freedom. I want that. And he said to me, Joey, I stopped. I moved out of Wakefield. He was from Wakefield. I moved out of Wakefield, so I don't have those influences anymore. And um, he said, I'm... I'm I'm going to be okay now. I stopped it. I got away from everyone. And I looked him right in the face. And I said, that's not enough. That's not enough. You need to, first of all, everything's connected. But you need to surrender your life to Jesus. You need to be part of a church. When I say part of a church, I'm not saying just Sunday morning at 11. Part of a church community. And you need to be on the mission of God and surrender yourself to God or you are not going to last. Your willpower is not enough. We know that. That's why you're here. It's not enough. It's too dangerous out there. You need to get in a community. You need to surrender your life to God or you're going to fall back into the same exact things. So he's obviously, he's back in jail, got out of jail, getting involved in stuff he shouldn't do, not living for Jesus. I saw him post something on Facebook the other day. Very blatant. He said, why is it the devil always provides? So some people say, well, that's just a saying. But I know this man. I know his struggles. The devil always provides when he's trying to lead people astray and away from Jesus. So the drugs he wanted, the sexual immorality he wanted, the power he wanted, to live his lazy lifestyle, the, all the things he wanted tempted him too much that he wouldn't surrender his life to Jesus. He says, why is it so easy that every time I want to get caught up in these things, I can do these things? They're right there, the drugs, the women, the, the, all these things. Why is it 
it's because Satan is tempting you. Demons are tempting him and running his life. He's a slave to sin. Because that's what the devil does. He devastates lives. I can't tell you how many young men, how many young women I talk to and say, listen to me. You're going to get torn up out there. You cannot do it. You need to be around Jesus. You need to be around his people. You need to be on his mission. You need to surrender because he's just going to take you right back. And I watch over and over again, people fall to the temptation of the devil. Demons. My heart breaks. I remember being a little kid and watching so much happen in my family. And being aware from a young age that there was an unseen reality, enemy of God and demons and Satan. I felt so frustrated. I remember crying because I, I always wanted to protect. That's always been in me. I said, I gotta protect. Eight, nine year old kid. Everything's falling apart. I said, how do I protect my family from this? How do I do this? Not being so angry as I got older because I couldn't. I was an eight and a nine year old boy. I couldn't do anything. And as I got older and realized, realized Satan, I became very angry at the works of Satan. Almost to the point where I was so, I had to get control of myself. I said, it tore my family apart. To a life's apart. People are dead. People are addicted. People aren't worshiping Jesus. People hate each other. And I said, this is the work of the enemy. Satan and our demons have been successful in luring every human being into sin except for one. Except for one. There is one who came who did not give into the works of Satan, who did not get lured by temptation or lust of the eyes or the pride of this life or the pride in possessions. There's only one who was successful in resisting the enemy, and that is Jesus. Every other time he was successful, Adam and Eve, every person who was born has one time or another fallen to the lies of the enemy and been tempted into sin. But there is one who came, who resisted the devil, and who was victorious. I want that word to stay with you today. The devil tempted him. And that's why I want you guys to know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was tempted just like of us, like us. Could have sinned just like us. Had anguish just like us. Had pain just like us. Temptation, I would argue, even more than you. Yet he did not sin. So we go back to this passage in Genesis 3.15, the first proclamation of the gospel, where God, in the fall of man, says, yes, you have fallen, yes, you have sinned, yes, there are consequences, but I'm sending one who will crush the head of Satan. We see that realized. When Jesus comes to the earth and lives a sinless life, a perfect death, a perfect resurrection, he crushes the works of Satan crushes them. Now you see in that same passage, it says in the prophecy, you will bruise his heel. That's the crucifixion. That's the suffering. That's him wounded. But he's going to crush your head. He was bruised. He was wounded for our transgressions, for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. But through his life, perfect life, sinless life, his death and resurrection, Satan is crushed. Crushed. Bring that one home, chew on it. I like that word. 
What does that mean? If you were turning with Colossians with me, those who have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you know I don't judge by now. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses, in the circumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having given us of all trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. This he said, set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the doctrine of Christus Victor or the doctrine of Christ that's victorious. That means that Satan and our demons have no more authority in your life. So I want to tell you a story. It's a heavy story. It's a heavy message. A pastor I know wrote a book, or I know of. I shook his hand, but he's a, he's a big dog. He wrote a book, and in that book he was trying to give different letters he wrote to different members of his congregation who were struggling with stuff. And this one member was this woman. She was a woman now. She was married to a good man at this point of her life. But when she was younger, first of all, she had a horrible dad. She had a cowardly dad. And I need to tell you guys, cowardly dads are root of all kinds of evil. And so she was molested as a child from a family relative. Her father never encouraged her, never built her up, but only added to the fuel that she was worthless and didn't have much value. So she turned to finding her value in men, sleeping with multiple men, many men, men who didn't value her, men who used her. Once again, her father was a coward. So he let those men come in his house and sleep with his daughter in their house in her bedroom. She would make sexual noises, but she would make them as a cry to say, Daddy, come in here, knock down this door, and get me out of this situation. Now, I'm not saying that she's not a sinner, too. She was. One time, her father knocked on the door, but didn't come in because he's a coward. She had trouble with hearing demonic voices from the time she was young and got involved in all that stuff to the time she got older. She would have voices in her head telling she's worthless, she's nothing. And she couldn't, she found Jesus. She found Jesus. And Jesus changed her life. She found a man that was courageous and fought for her and provided for her and stood for her. Which are all good things. And her life was changed. But she still battled the enemy because of her past, because she couldn't forgive herself because of her sin, because she still heard herself saying she's worthless, this and that. So he wrote her a letter. And what she needed to know was Christ was victorious in her life. That her sin was absolutely forgiven. Because much of spiritual warfare is rooted to sin that sometimes we have committed that gives an enemy the place in our life, and then you have a stronghold for generations. I'm telling you generations. I need you guys to hear me that this is real. 
Because we don't preach about this every week. For generations. How many times have you seen generations of people devastated by the same thing, the same lies, the same life, the same addictions, and they can't break out of it? They're hearing voices. They can't get out. They don't want to let people know. It's because it's demonic. And she couldn't shake the battle. And she felt like she had to succumb to that battle. Until she learned the doctrine that Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers, Satan and demon. First of all, she no longer had to live in the guilt of her past or the guilt of her sin. She couldn't let it go. She couldn't forgive herself. She said, I can't forgive myself. Look what I did. She was so messed up from what she had done. She said, I can't forgive myself. Sin had to be disarmed. She had to realize that God loved her like the perfect father now. That he was pleased with her. She had to realize that Satan was defeated. And he sent this beautiful letter outlining all the stuff and even telling her how to combat it when it happened. Let me tell you, this stuff isn't every day. And I don't want you to be obsessed with it, but demonic spiritual warfare is real. I have seen it. I'll preach more on it when we end the series. But I can't get into that today because we're really talking about Satan and the big story, how there's an enemy of God. But he gave it, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said, because I want anyone here, and I know people will never talk about this. They would never talk about this. Especially men would never talk about this. More people are demonically attacked than you would expect but they'll never talk about it because they don't want to be embarrassed. You know how many people are addicted to stuff that really have... Now, there's people who have real mental health issues, so I'm not saying that's not a real thing. But you'll be blown away at the percentage of people who have, are attacked demonically, who have addiction problems. And that's the only way. Instead of turning to Christ victorious, surrendering to Jesus, and finding that relief, that release in the Holy Spirit... They turn to drugs to numb the pain. That's why heroin's the biggest. Why? It makes you feel like a hero. You feel like you have no problems, no struggle, no enemy. But these are the three things. I want you guys to know this. And I really, pastorally, you need to know this in your life. You need to know this for your children. You need to know it for your parents. You need to know it for your family. If at any time you feel like you're being demonically attacked, once again, I'm going to talk extensively about spiritual warfare in a couple months. So I'll be able to talk about the work. What's the world? What's the flesh, our sinful desire that tempts us? You know, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil and demons. But when it is a demonic attack, and you feel it is a demonic attack, like this woman, this is what she did, and this is what the pastor told her to do, and I want you to take this advice. First of all, I want you to pray and thank God that he is victorious over Satan, sin, and demons. That heart prayer, Lord, I thank you that you have crushed the head of Satan. Then I want you to pray and I want you to say, Jesus, send these demons away from me. And then I want you to say, demons be gone through the authority of Christ. I know none of you need it, but there's someone in here, there's probably multiple people that would never admit it at times have been demonically attacked. Then, that three-step first, Jesus, I thank you, Victoria. Secondly, Jesus, send them away. Take authority, rebuke. And finally, thank the Lord that the work is finished. Jesus, thank you for protecting me, for walking over me, 
for allowing me to risk the devil and for overcoming the spiritual warfare. You don't have to say the same exact words to me, but you guys understand that framework? It's real, guys. It's real. We believe it because the Bible says it. We believe it because I've seen it. I've experienced it. Believe me. I'm not someone who obsesses over these things. But I'm also so someone who's seen a devastation. Just like in Jaws, they didn't tell them the shock in the water and everyone's getting killed. People's lives are getting ruined because they don't know they have an enemy. As a pastor, it's my job to tell you that. And finally, one of the greatest works of the enemy in people's lives is that they don't understand that the gospel is a gospel of grace. So this is one of the way the enemy works. He tries to create religious systems that tell you have to perform so well or do so good in order to inherit heaven or be in right relationship with God or for God to be pleased with you. That's the enemy's work. When the gospel is all about grace. You can't rightly see Jesus as victorious unless you realize that your sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven. Believe me, this is something I struggle with, even this week. I have serious problems believing the gospel. I'm telling you as a pastor. I want to get into this religious system where I'm good enough. Or it's partially grace, but I can be good enough to be pleasing to God. I have so much trouble shaking it. I have to talk to my wife all the time about it. I have to share it in my home group. I have trouble believing the gospel is true. That is grace. I want to put a little grace in there. I have about 50% of my own works thinking I deserve it. But then when I do that, I realize I don't deserve it. Then I'm looking at every past sin. I'm looking at every failure. I'm looking at and saying I'm not where I should be. I'm not acting how I should act. Or I'm not perfect. And let me tell you, it's taken days away from my life. Because I said, has God left me yet? Has he cast me out yet? Is he pleased with me? But when I believe the truth of God, rather the lie of the enemy, I understand the gospel is by grace. So anyone here who has sinned, who is sinning, of course, if you're sinning, I ask you to repent. But past sins are the way that the enemy gets in so much in people's life. I need you to understand the truth. Not just because I'm saying this so you feel better. The truth is that your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. Every one of them was on Jesus on the cross because his life was perfect. He did what we couldn't do. And then you will stand, if you believe the gospel of grace, you'll be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. You'll be able to live a life of joy. You'll be able to preach that gospel and see people in your family, your friends set free. Amen?